Thank you, Brian. Appreciate you. Um, just to, just as an FYI, uh, so everybody knows, um, really appreciate, uh, thanks for your faithfulness uh, in giving to the church. Uh, I've mentioned it before a million times, but it's really a joy to take on a new school year and to be able to, uh, to plan and to pray. And I just encourage you to be praying. Uh, be praying for the Praying for the church, pray that God pours out provision on us so that all the dreams and things that he's moving in us, uh, the things that we want to see accomplished in the church uh, would be provided for. I just wanted to make uh, mention as well, if, um, if it's of help to you, um, you can go on online. I think it's at fouroakschurch.com. Uh, there's online giving stuff there. And then if you're really techie, some millennials uh, might enjoy it. I know that my wife and I really have taken advantage of the text giving option thing. Uh, so you could look for information on that as well. Uh, But otherwise, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. And I want you to know that it's been been probably four months that I've been waiting to say that exact statement. Uh, Let's turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 1. We have spent, I think, a a really good amount of time uh, preparing for it as a pastoral team. Me personally, I know the summer has been sort of immersed in trying to, to really live out and get the message of this book. That's been, that's been the goal. And so we are diving in today. We are beginning a new sermon series uh, that's going to take us um, before the foreseeable future through the book of Acts. And there are a number of great reasons to dive into this book. We outlined some of them last week. The themes that we're going to find here are absolutely vital. This is not a book that we come to and think to ourselves If we get around to it, these things would be nice to add to Christianity. These are the foundational documents of our faith. These tenets, these themes that we're going to see coming out, without them, Christianity is void and null. That's how serious these things are. We're going to see themes like the necessity of the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. What that means in all of its chaos and confusion and who knows where we're going, the Holy Spirit is evident all through the book. We talked about the amazing prevalence of community in the book of Acts. What is God doing when he, when he binds people together in Christ? When we see the same truth, when we stand shoulder to shoulder and say, do you see it? I see Jesus and he's beautiful. What God does in community in us is massive and it's important and it's something that we ought to really wrestle with. And then, of course, we also discovered that the point of this gospel, this good news, is to spread into the very ends of the earth. It has missional sort of implications for us. Those are all great reasons to jump into the book. Um, But I, of course, am cognizant of and delighted to go here simply because this is the Word of God. It's always good for us to come underneath the Word of God, not beside it, not over it as a critic, not as a companion, not partners with, but to come underneath the Word of God and say, God, speak and transform and move me. And so we are going to begin in Acts chapter 1. Let me begin reading. I'm going to go the first 11 verses, and then I want to pray and ask God to bless our time together. So let's begin reading. This is the book of Acts. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. 
And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Let's pray. Father, we need... We need that Spirit, the same Spirit that Jesus had His disciples wait upon, the same Spirit that baptized them, that filled them. We need that Spirit desperately here this morning. We need Your Holy Spirit because it is the only thing. He is the only one. He is the only one who gives us proper vision of sin and righteousness. He is the only one that can take from Jesus and give to us He's the only one that makes meaningful our time together. God, we desire to not go through the motions, to not have a mere academic exercise. We don't want to simply seem sophisticated or learned by diving into Scripture. We want to be transformed. We want to see you. We want to know you more. So God, help us. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And I pray, God, that you'd soften our hearts so that when we do see and when we do hear, that we find grace to walk in what you have proclaimed, to rest in what you've promised. God, I pray that you would protect us, that you'd you'd guard us, our hearts and our minds. Help me to be faithful and true to your word. We want to delight in you. We want to be grateful for what you're doing in the church. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to introduce right at the, the start, uh, basically the, the proposition, the main point I want to make from these 11 verses. It's going to be in a sentence, and then we're going to unpack the sentence sort of step by step, okay? So here is the sentence that we're going to pull from these first 11 verses of Acts. This is an introduction, both on Luke's part as well as on our part. We're just diving into the book. And I think this is what we're going to going to see, and it might serve as an okay banner all the way throughout the entire book of Acts. Here's the sentence. History shows that the work of a conquering Christ, of the conquering Christ, continues through an empowered and multiplying church. Now, I know that's a mouthful. History shows that the work of the conquering Christ continues through an empowered and multiplying church. There's a bunch of words in there, and all of them, I think, are there for good reasons, and I hope to walk through and show you what we mean by this. But the overall title of the series that we're, we're borrowing from, and maybe you've heard this from a, a, local, a local American football team, uh, we're, we're saying essentially the, the series, the theme behind all of it, we're just using the word unconquered. And I know that that seems sort of maybe cliche and like, oh, I've seen that on a statue somewhere. 
Um, and I, we know that there are like on-the-money tie-ins with, oh, oh, how quaint, what a pun, right? right? But here's the, here's the reality. Acts is a book of, of glory, of conquering, of being unconquered. Jesus made a promise to his disciples that he would build the church and we stand as a testimony like that statue in front of Doak. We stand as a testimony 2,000 years later that God, when he intends to do something, his spirit, his people, his movement through Jesus Christ is unconquered. It's unrivaled. It will not fail. There are promises that are rock solid. And this conquering Jesus Christ, this conquering Christ, what began with his one life, his incarnation, his perfect righteous life, his death, his resurrection, the intent was that his life would spread to the end of the earth. And history is going to show us that his work is continuing and ongoing here on the earth today. And that's really what happens in the book of Acts. And so I'm going to walk through and I'm just going to pick a few words out of this sentence and we are going to consider them together. That's, that's where we're going. So the first one that we're going to consider is just this fact, this word history, right? I just opened up the book of Acts and we read it and I used the word history. Now that could be a very controversial statement for some people, right? Especially when you're using a holy book. Oh, you're opening the Bible and you're going to dare to use words like history. But I want to commend to you, or I want to show you that in order for us to understand Scripture, we must take it on its own terms. And the Bible never claims to be anything else than at a minimum, it's more than, but at a minimum, it is a, it's a historical account. Luke sets out as a careful, competent historian. That's what he's doing. He is recording a narrative history. This is what Jesus began to do and teach. And this is what he continues to do and teach. Luke was a very, very able historian. He compiled eyewitness testimonies. He was a journalist of sorts at the time. His record, careful record of places and journeys and names and rulers has stood the test of archaeological digs, has stood the test of historical inquiry all throughout the ages. He is as careful a historian as anyone in the first couple of centuries. And he has compiled for us his account of what Jesus began to do and teach. And I think this is a very, very significant point for us. We come to Scripture not simply looking for a moral guidebook. We don't come to the Bible looking for a moral guidebook alone. Of course, it is a light to our feet. It's a lamp on our path, right? We can, we can walk according to the principles of Scripture. But first and foremost, it is a historical account. It is not merely good advice. This is a book of good news. News comes to you as an account of what has taken place. And many people come to the Bible and they think that it's simply a collection of good advice. And I want you to know that the way that Luke opens the book of Acts is very similar to the way that he opens the book of Luke. Luke chapter 1. He's writing to this exact same person. Luke wrote both the book of Acts and one of the Gospels, and so his writings account for some 30% of the New Testament. He opens the book of Luke. He has a very, very similar style in the way that he opens it. Luke chapter 1, he says this, "...inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us." 
He's, a, he's journaling. He's making an account, a record, a narrative record, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses. He's, he's pulling language that gives you a foundation to stand upon. They were eyewitnesses and ministers of the Word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Theophilus is likely a friend, perhaps someone who commissioned this report. It's probably an individual, although Theophilus is sort of a generic word, meaning friend of God. Some have said maybe it's just a generic title for all who would come upon the work, but usually generic titles don't come with qualifiers like most excellent. And so many people think this was someone that he's writing to, historical narrative to Theophilus. And why is he writing this? Luke chapter 1 verse 4, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Scripture is no help to us if it is not a true narrative account. It is history. That's how it presents itself. Most people think, and you'll probably come across conversations where most people think that the Bible is simply a a collection, a smattering of Proverbs, much like if you turned, turned into a Proverbs, it's a list of, of sort of pithy sayings that help us along, like a mother's goose that survived the ages, right? And people think that that is the way that all holy books are. It's simply a collection of good advice. And more than that, if that's the way you view the Bible, then every single thing recorded in the Bible must be commended to us. If it's in the Bible, then it must be good. Have you had a conversation like this? Oh, you're a Christian? Are you kidding me? The Bible, the Bible condones rape. You know that? I read it in Judges. There's rape in there. And what do we say to that? What do we say to the charges that the Bible condones all of these horrible things? We say this, that those horrible things are in Scripture because Scripture is not intended to be a collection of good advice. It is a recording of news. It's a recording of history, and real history, real live history was going to include all of the terrible, nasty, gross failings of people who are unfaithful and unable to walk with their God. That's what history looks like, right? If you came across the history of something, and as you read it, it was all roses and peachy keen and candy cane lane, it was all collect go, $200, it was all heroes and winners and supermodels, what would you think to yourself? This history has been, has been sort of revised, right? This is not a history. This is a picture of something that is, we're being sold something. Scripture is not selling you a lifestyle of good advice. It's not the history of a man who came and simply was a good moral teacher. It's a historical account, and that's what it is always claimed to be. You cannot understand the Bible unless you come at it at its own terms. And it declares to us that this is a historical account. Your Christian life is not built on simply having better advice than any other religious system. Your faith today stands or falls on the historical record of careful eyewitness accounts to a person that lived in time and had flesh and blood. And that is what Acts is introducing to us. This concept, the book of Acts, not only Acts, but the all of Scripture, 
is an account of people wrestling with God and they're sinning and they're repenting and they're wandering and they're groping and they're finding. It's a story about God who reaches out and loves and promises and comes and lives and dies and then lives again. And all of these things couch down into real life. Just like there would be in a historical account of FSU beating Auburn, right? That's in the record books. Cannot be removed. It is there for all eternity. And that is what Luke has given us. And I want you to know that it's not just Luke who insists upon this. It's not just Luke that insists upon the fact that this is a historical record. And for us, we're so far removed. We're 2,000 years, and we have the history of the church to look back at, and we have all of the social implications of moms and dads who prayed and loved us, and we have clear benefit from some of the blessings of God in the church. But the apostles, the apostles were not interested in waking up and implementing just a good system of advice. They lived and were martyred because of what they saw and knew. It's not just Luke. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. Peter insists on this. What does he say? For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. We were eyewitnesses of His majesty. Peter says some of you love mythology. You love it. You learn from it. These stories are good. They sort of inform us and they help us to figure out how we're, we're groping around and trying to deal philosophically with our existence and our being. And myths can be helpful. And Peter says, I have no interest in being helpful through myths. We were eyewitnesses of the person, Jesus Christ, who lived and died and lived again. John, in 1 John chapter 1, again, note the sensory historical words that John's going to use when he describes his account. 1 John 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, Jesus. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which is with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Luke, Peter, John had no interest in being murdered for good advice. They had no interest in dying. They had no interest in dying for clever, pithy statements that make life a little bit easier. They lived and proclaimed and moved the message forward and died because they claimed a historical account of a real person, of Jesus who came. And that is what we're presented with in the book of Acts. We cannot look back at, look back at Acts and deal with it rightly or deal with it honestly unless we take it as what it claims to be, and it claims to be a historical account. That's what we have. This is a historical account then, and what we see take place over the next 28 chapters is a record. It's a record of what God is doing in the church. And so when we come upon it, we say, what is Christianity built upon? In some regard, it is built upon history. It's built on history, and that is 
what we find in this book. A history of what? This is the second point. So history shows that the work of the conquering Christ, right? That's a big fancy name to just say Jesus. Acts is all about Jesus. All of the Bible is about Jesus. We see that all the way through these 11 verses. Some people would say, well, the Gospels in the New Testament are about Jesus, right? Everybody knows Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And that's about Jesus. But then it's sort of like once you get to Acts, the focus shifts and it becomes about the apostles. Maybe it becomes about the church. It becomes about Peter for a little while. And then maybe about Paul. Acts doesn't let us off the hook. This is a book strictly and clearly about Jesus. There are 15 references to Jesus in the first 11 verses of the book of Acts. 15 at least. Did you? I went through and I just simply underlined and sort of highlighted all the references, either, either directly to Jesus or pronouns, right? I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and just, until the day he was taken up. He had given commands. He had chosen. He presented himself. His suffering. He ordered them not to depart. He said, you have heard from me. They asked him, Lord. He said to them, when he had said these things, he was lifted up. This Jesus taken up from you into heaven. You saw him go into heaven. This is a book about Jesus. It is not Jesus setting an example in the Gospels and then leaving and Jesus is gone and void and he leaves it up to us. It's not we show up in the morning and we say like, okay, everybody, remember, this is not guilt shaming about how much we can be like Jesus as our example. Jesus is still the center of the church and he is the one sustaining it. He's the one building it. He is the one doing this ministry. There's a connection between his work in the Gospels and what he does in the rest of the New Testament. A very, very clear connection. This is how John Stott says it. A lovely Brit. This is what John Stott says. And I appreciate this quote. He frames things well. He's talking about Luke. In his former book, he, Luke, has written about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, since he was powerful in word and deed before God and all people. In this, his second book, he implies that he will write about what Jesus continued to do and to teach after his ascension, especially through the apostles whose sermons and authenticating signs and wonders Luke will faithfully record. I love this last sentence. It summarizes a ton of what is happening in Acts. Thus, Jesus' ministry on earth, which was exercised personally and publicly, was followed by his ministry from heaven, exercised through his Holy Spirit by his Apostles. The church is Jesus' church. It's not Jesus did his ministry on earth and left it to us and said, Do your best. Acts records the conquering work of Jesus after he sat down at the right hand of God the Father. That is the record of what's happening. Jesus ascends, he sits down at the right hand of God the Father, and he works. And he does what he promised I will build my church. And that's what he's done. That's what he's done for 2,000 years. Jesus, sitting down at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us, sending his Spirit, making people new, binding them in union with himself so that the ministry and the work of the church would continue. This is a historical record. A historical record of who? It's a historical record of what Jesus began to do and teach in his incarnation. It's also a historical record of what he continues to do after his ascension. That is the record of the church. We have no hope without it. 
Do you understand that? You know we have zero hope if Jesus is not continuing to minister and conquer and lead and sustain. We have no hope. Zero hope. All of this is a waste of time. It's a social exercise. It maybe helps us feel better. We like community. We like to get our brains stimulated. But this is a waste. It's a waste of time if Jesus is not alive and well and leading his church. And I think that Luke is telling us in my old book, in the other book, I started telling you, I recorded what Jesus began to do and teach. And what's he implying now? In this book, Theophilus, I'm going to describe to you over the next 30, 40 years, look what Jesus continued to do and teach. You remember what he said of his Holy Spirit? I'll send the Comforter to you and he will bring to you remembrance all things. He will teach you. He will take from me and give to you. That's what Jesus says. He'll take from me and give to you. And that is what's taking place in Acts. So we have a historical record of a conquering Christ, of Jesus. And what does he do? He sends his Spirit so that his work would continue through an empowered church. An empowered church. That's the first thing we're going to talk about. What is the power? What is the power that the disciples are given to do anything significant in the earth? To make any difference? And of course, we see from the beginning the introduction, this command in verse 5, or this this introduction in verse 5, and then the command later in 7 and 8. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. I know many of you right now are just thinking like, would you please tell me what that means? Like, what do you mean? <clears throat> I had this friend once talked about baptized with the Holy Spirit and it just seemed really weird and like I'm scared of that. Some of the rest of you were like, oh yes. <laughs> and like, like finally, finally we're talking about this, right? I promise you that over the next three to four chapters, this concept, this idea of what does this mean, this baptism of the Holy Spirit, we're going to wrestle with that because it's all the way through the beginning of Acts. How do we deal with it? What is this for? Who is this for? How does it work? But no matter what you believe about what this means, baptized with the Holy Spirit, what in the world does that mean? We know that Jesus commanded his disciples to wait for something, right? To wait for something. Have you ever considered that at the time that it seemed like the disciples had a better resume than any of us? They had a better resume than any of us. What had they done? Oh, they spent three years with Jesus, day in and day out. They were hand-picked. I listened to this, this constitutional law kind of podcast kind of thing. I'm just nerdy like that. Usually when I'm mowing the lawn, I'm like, I'm like listening to, to Supreme Court counter decisions and like all kinds of things like that. Because um, I'm curious. The world is a big place and it's awesome. And so I'm listening to this stuff. And in the introduction to this particular guy's, to this particular guy's uh, podcast, in his introduction, this has been 15 years, he served in one of the presidential, in one of the presidential uh, offices, one of the presidential terms. He was chosen. He was tabbed as like special counsel. He was, he was tabbed as a special counsel. He had some big long name. And still, like 15, 16 years later, he introduces his podcast. And one of the ways that he commends himself to you is by saying that he was tabbed, he was chosen. He was called out by the President of the United States for his information regarding law. Right? We do that all the time. We name drop because it validates us. Your resume. It's like every person you meet, you think like, could I bump them for my reference list? Would this be better? Like, thanks, John. You used to be important, but... I just met the governor, right, or whatever, right? You want to put that on there? Can you imagine the disciples, right? The disciples are, 
are maybe a little bit confused. They don't know what to do, but at least their resume includes this. Oh, Peter, you want to stand up and preach at Pentecost? What right do you have? Well, I spent three straight years with Jesus, and I was tabbed by him personally to be one of his inner circle. That goes a long way, right? That might go a long way in religious circles. Write that at the top of the resume. One of 12 people in the history of ever that Jesus said, come follow me. That's not bad. Right now I have like tried to get a campus going. <laughs> like went to seminary. The disciples had an amazing resume, right? They'd spent three years with Jesus. And more than that, some of what he did rubbed off on them. You know that by the end of Jesus' ministry, he was, he was doing crazy things like blowing the Holy Spirit on them and sending them out two by two. And it says that at the times, apparently, they were even casting out demons and doing all kinds of miraculous stuff. They expected even to do it. So much so that at one point when they couldn't cast out a demon, they came to Jesus and they're scratching their heads. and like, why could we not do this? Like we thought... So all this rubbed off on them. They're in Jerusalem, which is a great place to launch a religious movement especially amongst Jewish, Jewish people, right? You'd think that all this is enough. And what does Jesus say? No, 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 no. Wait. Wait, wait. You don't have what you need yet. Wait, wait, wait. They lacked the power of the Holy Spirit. We could have all of the experience in the world. I could know every single Hebrew and Greek word in the Bible by heart. If we do not have the Holy Spirit, we have nothing. I don't know how else to say it. This is a waste of our time. Jesus knew it. He tells them, go wait, go wait, go wait. Well, why did they have to wait? Why did they have to wait? What's the theological answer? What's the doctrinal answer? And this is the best that we can come up with. This is essentially, I think, the truth of what's happening in this particular moment. The reason they had to wait is because Jesus had not yet ascended. He had not yet been glorified. He had not taken his place seated next to the Father. And apparently, that is a significant thing. Look at this little account that you can pull from, pull from John chapter 7. It's a minor little verse, and it's almost kind of a throwaway. It's not yet in a significant point where John is going to deal with the teaching on the Holy Spirit. I think this is why Jesus said they had to wait. John chapter 7, verse 39. Now this he said about the Spirit. Jesus said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. In other words, in the future, they would receive the indwelling of the Spirit. For as yet, the Spirit had not yet been given. Why? Why does John say in this little parenthetical, kind of throwaway little comment in John chapter 7? Because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus was not yet glorified. And it brings us to this particular point. The ascension of Jesus matters. The ascension of Jesus matters. I think a lot of times the church has completely undervalued and misunderstood and sort of had a throwaway aspect of Jesus' ministry is the ascension, right? Everybody knows about the incarnation. Everybody knows that because they've been to Christmas pageants, right? Everybody understands the incarnation. Little baby silent night, right? Everybody knows that. There's, there's a million songs. Like right now, you go to Hobby Lobby, you get glitter on you and uh, you get... You get a wreath around your neck when you walk in. Christmas, like everyone knows the incarnation, right? 
More and more has been made, maybe a little bit less so, but about Jesus' perfect life. His perfection is the only hope that you have. If Jesus had not fulfilled the law, if he had not been faithful to the covenant, if he had not stepped into Israel's failing place and been faithful, if he had not come through waters and walked in righteousness, we would have no hope. So his life, we celebrate it. We know his crucifixion, of course. Everybody understands the significance of that. You go to Good Friday, right? You think this is the night when everyone gets morbid? Talk about a crucifixion, about an execution. We understand what Jesus is doing. He's being forsaken of God so that He might bear the sins of the world. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. We understand the crucifixion. Jesus' work is significant in the crucifixion. And in all the darkness of the crucifixion, we know that a few days later, that Sunday is coming. And so we rejoice in, of course, the resurrection. The resurrection makes sense to us. We get it. And we're going to see all throughout Acts that the resurrection mattered to the apostles. They were witnesses not only of Jesus, but of a risen Christ. There's these beautiful times at the end of Luke and at the end of John where Jesus is making a big deal about the fact that he's resurrected in the body. He comes and they're scared and like, are you ghost Jesus or what are you? And he says, no, come and touch me. I'm alive. I'm a human. I'm, I'm risen again. Do you have any fish? And I can, I can see Jesus just looking at them like they're staring. They don't know what to make of this. And Jesus is just like, Mm. You know, like he's making the point, like he's, he's resurrected, he's a real man, and we understand the resurrection. On Easter, we said if there's no resurrection, then we have no hope. We are of all people to be pitied. That's what Paul said. And then we read the end of some of the Gospels, especially the end of Luke's Gospel. You know, at the end of Luke's Gospel, he ends with the ascension. And then he picks back up and acts, and what does he begin with? The, record of the ascension. It sort of becomes this throwaway, like, what? What does this even mean? And yet it's hugely significant. This is a fulfillment. This is a fulfillment of the promise in Philippians chapter 2 that one day that Jesus would be given a name that was highly exalted, a name above every other name, that he would sit down at the right hand of the Father. The ascension matters for you and for me. It is him taking his rightful place as a conquering king over all of creation. The ascension matters more than I think that we like to believe. There's a beautiful little section in the Heidelberg Catechism, question number 49. Some of you don't know what that is, and that's fine. You know, the Heidelberg Catechism, I think, was written, it was written by a 21-year-old kid, um, which makes me just think like a, feel like a huge failure, <laughs> doesn't it? <clears throat> but listen to this question and answer. I think it's helpful to us to think about the ascension. This is the question. How does Christ's ascension into heaven benefit us? How does it benefit us? First, he is our advocate in heaven before his Father. We have an advocate. We have an advocate, someone who sits before God and intercedes for us endlessly. What a gift. Second, we have our flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that he, our head, will also take us, his members, up to himself. In other words, Jesus is like the beta version of human flesh dwelling in heaven forever. He takes on a human body. He eats the fish. He's alive and he's well and he's in heaven. That gives us hope that when we rise again in glorified new bodies, that our bodies can dwell in heaven forever, right? He's, this is what it's saying. It's a benefit to us. Jesus went first. He's our leader in every sense. He's the first fruits of the resurrection and he is in God's presence. Therefore, we have hope that because we're united with him, we'll be in, Christ's presence, or in God's presence as well. 
But then third, this is the amazing part. Third, he sends us his spirit as a counter pledge by whose power we seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God and not the things that are on earth. The ascension is vital and it's proof that Jesus knew what he was talking about when he said to his disciples, it is better that I go. It's better that I go for I will send the comforter. And do you see the scene now? Jesus finishes work, finishes his work on earth. He secures life. He secures forgiveness. He secures freedom for all of those who are in him, whom God had loved before the foundation of the world. And he ascends and he sits down at the right hand of God the Father to be a king forever, to reign. He inherits a kingdom. And as he sits down, he sends out his spirit. A spirit which had come and any good work that had been done on the earth had come. The spirit had come and it had been upon people at times. But it could be removed and it was uncertain and it blew wherever it wished. But he sits down and for all of those who are united with him, he sends the Holy Spirit to indwell those and to give them a comfort and power. That is the point of the ascension. Comfort and power. I want you to note the last thing. This is a historical record about Jesus. It's a historical record about Jesus and His commitment to sending His Spirit so that you might have power. And then finally, it's a record about a church that begins to multiply. The way that Jesus is going to conquer, the way that good news is going to be proclaimed into all the earth is through a church. The church is really sort of an introduction. It's sort of uh, a revelation at this point. What we think of as church, and I don't just mean the buildings. I don't mean just the cultural, all the cultural milieu that comes along with what we think of as church. I don't just mean great is thy faithfulness and organs and your Sunday best. I had a kid one time in a music class when I was in fourth grade start crying in class, in music class, and nobody knew what was going on. He waited around and he talked to his teacher. He said, why are you, cry- why are you crying? And he said, I'm crying because I don't have a vest. He just said, what are you talking about? We're, we're all trying not to make fun of this kid. I don't have a vest. I don't have a vest. I don't have a vest. And uh, the teacher said, what are you talking about a vest? And he said, well, you said that if we didn't come in our Sunday vest on, on Tuesday, we couldn't be in the program. And so, anyway, Sunday best, right? <laughs> you, get, you get it? So this poor kid, and, and I took delight in his... Anyway, so I'm, bad, I'm a bad person, okay? That's the moral of that story. I'm a bad person. But I don't mean church in the sense that all the milieu around church, not just Sunday best and how we interact with one another. I mean the church is the gathered people of God, brothers and sisters in community, praying for one another and blessing one another. The kind of force that the church is going to be on the earth is a revelation at this point. Because up to this point in the New Testament, you know what word has defined the work that God's doing on the earth? It's in here. And you want to take a stab? It's in here. What do the disciples ask Jesus? What are they concerned about? They're not concerned about the church. Lord, at this time, will you restore the what? The kingdom. Kingdom, 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 kingdom. This idea that God's people were going to reign, that his rule would cover the earth. That's what they were concerned about. The word of the New Testament up to the book of Acts is kingdom. It's kingdom. Do you remember this? John the Baptist comes, and what does he say? Well, he comes, and of course, he says, repent. Why? Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom is coming. That's what John the Baptist's message is. 
And then Jesus, right after he's baptized, all of the Gospels indicate, specifically the beginning of Matthew in chapter 3, as well as Mark chapter 1, say that Jesus' message essentially was, repent for the kingdom is at hand. Jesus talking about the kingdom. In Matthew chapter 6, when the disciples come to him and say, Lord, teach us to pray. How does Jesus teach them to pray? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What? Thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom is the point of the New Testament all the way up to the book of Acts. The kingdom. Jesus is always telling parables about something. For the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. For the kingdom is like a man selling pearls. For the kingdom is like the kingdom, the kingdom. It's always about the kingdom. And here we find that up to this point, it still seems like that's the language how God was going to spread his rule over the earth. That's the language the disciples are wondering about. And you can understand that question, right? If you're a guru, leader, rabbi, teacher, friend, miracle worker, you see him dead and crucified and buried. Now he's back and alive and walking around. And you think, like, we're on the right team. <laughs> like, I think we just won, guys. Like, I, I don't know what anyone else is following, but this guy seems legit, right? So it makes sense. They, like, come up to him and they want to know what's going on and they ask him a question. Is now the time? Are you going to restore the kingdom? And the interesting thing that happens, what happens in the rest of the New Testament after all this kingdom talk? What results when the kingdom of heaven that is near? What results when the kingdom of heaven that is, we're praying would come on earth as it is in heaven? What results? The church. The church comes. Now, the kingdom of God encompasses far more than simply the church. But I think it's very safe to say that the avenue by which the kingdom rule of Jesus Christ is going to be exhibited on the globe is the church. We are what God does to spread his rule across the earth. We are either coming together underneath his care, underneath his word, surrendering ourselves to his care. We are an example of what it looks like to live in the kingdom. We are a light as the kingdom to the rest of the world who looks in and sees us. The church is not all of the kingdom. God is ruling and reigning in many ways all over the earth. But the church is the major, faithful, definitive representation of the answer to the prayer, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. God, multiply the church. Grow the church. When you want to pray in reference to the Lord's Prayer. When you want to see what does it mean the kingdom of heaven is like, I think in many ways you're blessing the church. That's what you're doing. You're blessing the gathering of God's people to come underneath His Word, to be aligned underneath King Jesus. And because this is Jesus' kingdom that's being expanded, then our church can do nothing less ever than to put Him solidly at the center of its rule. This is not our fellowship group's church. This is not Four Oaks Church, not the elders. It's not Lance's church. This is Jesus' church, period. Or it is nothing. That's just the, that's simply the way it is. And I firmly believe that what God is doing in sending His Spirit and in gathering us together is for us to witness to the same thing that Jesus proclaimed, to witness to the kingdom of God 
to what it looks like to fall underneath and to live according to God and to His commands, the way you were designed to be. That is what God is doing. History shows us that Christ is continuing to minister. He's continuing to work. He's continuing to care for His people and to build His own, and He's doing it through an empowered, multiplying church. That's why we want to see the church grow. We don't want to see the church grow just so that our name gets more famous, just so that we can spread a brand, just so we have cool podcasts. We want to spread the church because the church is a faithful representation of the kingdom of God where Jesus is set at the center of all things. I want to make an application that's a little bit separate from where we've gone in. I don't think it's separate. It's just going to be overriding of the entire book. As you guys leave today, you're going to get these uh, study guide booklets. I mentioned them last week, and I'm really excited about them. I spent a long time over the summer um, trying to find faithful ways uh, to help people dig into the Word of God better. I feel a huge burden that I want to, increasingly in the coming season, be more committed to Word and prayer. I think that's the calling of any elder in a church. And so this is one of the ways that we feel like we want to ask you to come along in this book. There's some nerdy knowledge in here, some questions, some background, some context, some things that we didn't talk about. It might help you in your study. There's some group discussion questions for your groups when you get together. There's a short essay at the end of every lesson. This is just the first six weeks. But if you're a person who likes to work ahead and you want something to, to go along with what we're studying, this will give you all the way up through the middle of October. You can, you can just dive in and just go for it. And I'm excited that you have this. But we wanted all of our learning and all of our growing, we wanted it to be in line with this idea of the church multiplying. And so at the end of every single week, you'll see it. Here's just an example. Week chapter 4. There is, at the end of every single week, this little section we call One Life. We called it One Life. And the reason we called it One Life is because world missions is like a huge daunting task, isn't it? You ever feel like that? You ever been to one of those seminars or seen online where they start describing all the unreached people groups in the world? 4,379 unreached people groups. Never heard the name of Jesus. No scripture. It's just like this massive thing. They do one of those zoom over things of the globe and there's huge swaths of the earth that don't know Christ. It's enough to just make you fetal position weeping. And so we thought, how, how can we press this down? How can we be faithful to say, spread the kingdom and God multiply the church? And so we felt like it would be informative and helpful for us to invite you over the next coming months, over the time that we're in Acts, to really be thinking, who do you interact with in your life? Because the gospel is a global message for a global world, but it begins one life at a time. God calls people out individually to repent of sins and to see who Jesus is and to find new life. And so we're asking you, to think about over the next week. Next week, there's going to be little cards where we're going to give them to you as an avenue to think about and pray for people that you care for. Who could you love better, more intentionally, more generously, more hospitably over the coming season? Who could you pray for more consistently? Who could you speak truth to a little bit more firmly? In love, of course. But who, who is it? Who, who might God be stirring in you so that over the course of the next nine, ten months, that what we're learning and what we're seeing and the things that have moved us, the gospel that has made us alive, the things that we hold to be true, not just good advice, but good news, actually happened in real time. How is that going to actually get out of our 
mouths and out of our hearts into the life of someone else. And that's what the little one life application is about. I encourage you this week to be praying about it. I think it's connected to what we talked about last week. Your willingness to intentionally pray for and love and be generous with someone outside of the church is directly connected to your faith and your trust in the fact, does God really save? Does God actually change people's lives? Does he transform people? And if he does, then we ought to be praying for the people we come in contact with all the time. You'll get these books on the, on the way out, and I encourage you to, to take it. We'd love to hear feedback if you have some questions about it, ask questions, um, but we hope that's of use to you. I'm excited for this series. I really am. I'm excited for what God is telling us in Scripture. I'm excited for the season of life that we're at as a church. And I feel really hopeful that God is going to do good things uh, in us as we continue to study it. Let me pray for us. God, thank you. Thank you for a historical record of a Jesus who came in real time and in real space.